0: Now we take up today reading where Bunyan says, and he changes scenes now, we move to an entirely different scene. He says, after this, I beheld until they were come into the land of Beulah, where the sun shineth night and day. Here, because they were weary, they betook themselves a while to rest. The land of Beulah. McGuire says this borderland of heaven is Beulah. He refers to Beulah land as being that borderland of heaven that spiritual state of peace and rest in which God ever comforts his children and feeds them with heavenly food and visits them with his grace and love and departs not from the holy place of the heart within which Jesus is enshrined as the loved and chosen guest. He then quotes Isaiah 62 verse 4 thou shalt be called Hezbo Hezbo and thy land Beulah for the Lord delighteth in thee and thy land shall be married McGuire says this is the place of the espousal of the soul to Jesus quotes a poem The bride and bridegroom doth rejoice in Beulah's marriage scene, while earth and heaven unite their voice, and Jordan rolls between. All the pilgrim band are resting here, as they alone can rest, who abide in Jesus and are stayed upon his love. They are now hard by the waters of death and are ripening fast for the reaper's sickle. Amid the pleasures of his grace and the consolations of his love, they await the message bearing the summons from their Lord. <clears throat> They're just waiting. They're in that, <clears throat> that Beulah land in which they are waiting Waiting for the Lord's call to them. That land just before crossing. White described it this way. In this country Bunyan says the sun shineth night and day. Oh oh how much steadfast must have enjoyed that land of light. You may guess when you recollect that he came. From dark land. Which lies in the hemisphere. Right opposite to the land of Beulah. In dark land the sun never shines. To be called sunshine and all. All the days of his youth. Standfast told his companions. He had sat beside his father and his mother. In that obscure land. Where to his sorrow. His father and his mother. Still sat. But in Beulah. The rose of evening becomes silently and suddenly the rose of dawn. This land lies beyond the valley of the shadow of death. Neither could they from this place so much as see Doubting Castle. (laughs) This land of Beulah is beyond the valley of the shadow of death. They've already, they've already crossed that. And he says from this vantage point. They can't even see Doubting Castle. <laughs> As some great writer said. And I don't know who it was. Heaven comes to them. Before they come to heaven. <laughs> That's often the case with the saint. Not always it's often the case with the saint so they're now in that Beulah land Bunyan says and because this country was common for pilgrims and because the orchards and vineyards that were here belonged to the king of the celestial country therefore they were licensed to make bold with any of his things (laughs) They are delighting in the blessed fruits of their king. Now, now, without reservation, without hesitation, without being marred by anything, they're enjoying him. But a little while soon refreshed them here, for the bells did so ring and the trumpets continually sound so melodiously that they could not sleep. And yet they received as much refreshing as if they slept their sleep never so soundly. <laughs> they weren't sleeping and yet they were so constantly refreshed because of the refreshments that they're drawing from being in this Beulah land. Let me just pause in the reading there and read you, I think, a worthy writing by Alexander White. White says, in the case in hand, by the time the pilgrims had come to Beulah, they had all had their full share of sin and of themselves until they here entered on an altogether new experience. Christian with desire fell sick, we read, and hopeful also had a fit or two of the same disease in this place. Wherefore, here they lay by it a while, crying out because of their pains. If you see my beloved, tell him that I'm sick with love. (laughs) David, Paul, Bernard, Bunyan himself, Rutherford, Brainerd, McShane, and many others crowd in upon our minds in this scene. I shall but instance, however, John Flavel and Mrs. Jonathan Edwards, and will then close. John Flavel, being once on a journey, set himself to improve the time by meditation when his mind grew intent till at length He had such ravishing tastes of heavenly joys and such a full assurance of his interest therein that he utterly lost sight and sense of this world and all its concerns. So that for hours he knew not where he was. (laughs) He was a beautiful man at last perceiving himself to be faint. (laughs) He sat down at a spring where he refreshed himself, earnestly desiring, if it were the will of God, that he might there leave this world. His spirit reviving, he finished his journey in the same delightful frame. And all that night the joy of the Lord still overflowed him, so that he seemed an inhabitant of another world. Mm. The only other case of love sickness I shall touch on tonight, I take from under the pen of a sin sick, love sick author who has been faithfully described as one of the first, if not the very first, Of the masters of human reason. And again described as one of the greatest. Of the sons of men. There is a young lady in New Haven. Says Edwards. Who is so loved of that great being. Who made and rules the world. That there are certain seasons in which this great being. And those are capitalized. Those words in some way or other, invisible comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight so that she hardly cares for anything but to meditate upon him. She looks soon to dwell wholly with him and to be ravished with his love and delight forever. Therefore, if you present all this world before her, that is Mrs. Jonathan Edwards. If you present all this world before her with the, rich, with the richest of its treasures, she disregards it all and cares not for it. And is unmindful of any pain or affliction. She is a she has a strange sweetness in her mind. <laughs> I love that description. A strange sweetness in her mind and a singular piet in her affections is most just and conscientious in all her conduct and we could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful if you would give her the whole world. She loves to be alone walking in the fields and groves and seems to have someone Invisible, always communing with her. White says, and so on through her seraphic history. Edwards says, now if such things are too enthusiastic, if such things are the offspring of a distempered brain, Let my brain be possessed evermore of this blessed (laughs) distemper. If this be distraction, I pray God that the whole world of mankind may all be seized with this benign, meek, beneficent, beatific, glorious distraction. The peace of God that passeth all understanding rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory god shining in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of god in the face of jesus christ with open with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of god and being changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the spirit of the lord being called out of darkness into the marvelous light and having the day star arise in our hearts, God grant it for us. What a sweet distraction is this. And out of what a heavenly distemper, and out of what a sane enthusiasm has all that has all that come to us. And then White recites this one verse from a point. More I would speak, but all my words are faint. Celestial love with eloquence can paint. No more by mortal words can be expressed, but all eternity shall tell the rest. (laughs) Hallelujah. Oh, to get a vision of that world. That reality, let it be called distraction if it will. Bunyan says, they didn't get to sleep. They weren't able to sleep all night. But they were rested and refreshed as if they'd slept soundly. Here also he says all the noise of them that walked the streets. More pilgrims are come to town. And another would answer saying, And so many went over the water and were let in at the golden gates today. They would cry again, There is now a legion of shining ones just come to town, by which we know that there are more pilgrims upon the road. For here they come to wait for them and to comfort them after all their sorrow. Then the pilgrims got up and walked to and fro. But how were their ears now filled with heavenly noises? Their eyes delighted with celestial visions. In this land they heard nothing, saw nothing, felt nothing, smelt nothing, tasted nothing that was offensive to their stomach or mind. Only when they tasted of the water of the river over which they were to go, they thought that it tasted a little brinish to the palate but it proved sweet when it went down. Now Scott has a marginal little notation there. He describes this paragraph. He says, death is bitter to the flesh, but sweet to the soul. And this is one of the things that I learned so thoroughly in all of my study in the preparation of writing that book on death. That when you view the saint dying, be very careful to distinguish between what is the reaction from the body versus from the soul. The the water from this river tasted to them brinish, but it was sweet when it went down. This body may be racked with pain, may be racked with suffering so terrible that it even distracts the mind. But don't mistake that for the condition of the heart and the soul. It's sweet. In this place there was a record kept of the names of them that had been pilgrims of old and a history of all the famous acts that they had done. It was here also much discoursed how the river to some had had its flowings and what ebbings it has had while others have gone over. It has been in a manner dry for some while it overflowed its banks for others. Now again, this is an important thing to note. The difference between God's sovereign purposes in the death of his saints. For some, this river may be easy. They would almost, as it were, go over dry shod and for others like dear old pilgrim in the first part versus hopeful pilgrim thought he would surely die drown drown in the river god has different purposes there is a note scott has he says the lively <clears throat> excuse me the lively exercise of faith and hope The anticipation of heavenly felicity and the consolations of the Holy Spirit soon make the believer forget his conflicts and sorrows or only remember them to enhance his grateful joy. This description represents the happy state of those that live in places favored with many lively Christians united in heart and judgment. And where instances of persons dying triumphantly are often reported or witnessed. It has frequently been observed that the aged believer in such circumstances have been remarkably delivered from fears and temptations and animated by the hopes and earnest of heaven so that while death seemed bitter to nature, it became pleasant to the soul to think of the joy and glory that would immediately follow it. There are different experiences to different saints. Overton had a great bit of wisdom to share with us on this matter. He said, here let us pause for a few moments to commune each with our own heart. We may be real Christians and yet know little of the triumphant experience of those who are the happy inheritance uh, inhabitants. We may be real Christians and yet know little of the triumphant experience of those who are happy inhabitants of this land of Beulah. Sometimes real saints and eminent saints when they approach their journey's end and linger for a while on the verge of the eternal world, do not find it a land where the sun shineth day and night. On the other hand, they sometimes find it enveloped in gloom and mist and darkness, and neither sun nor moon nor stars for many days appear. It's just a fact. It's just a fact in God's purposes. None of us know what those final hours will be like. None of us. He says these type folk, they trust indeed in the tender mercy of their God forever. They keep firm hold of the precious promises of the gospel. And with a deeper sense than ever of their violence and depravity, they renew again and again their earnest application by faith for a personal interest in the redemption that's in Christ. But they have no rapture, no triumph, no joy. They cannot come to revelations and visions. They have not a word to say of senses of glory opening upon their sight. Or seraphic sounds ringing in their ears. Their minds for the most part are absorbed with a deep and solemn sense of nearness. And amazing importance of eternal things. Nature shrinks at the prospect of death. And the sense which they have of their own sinfulness and the holiness of God has a more visible and evident effect upon them than their faith in Christ and their hope of everlasting life to be enjoyed through him. But in the absence of rapture and triumph, they have evidently got what is a more undoubted mark of the Spirit's work, a broken and contrite heart. An entire committal of their souls to Christ to save them. And a deep concern for the interest of his kingdom. This will mark even the greatest struggling soul. And Overton says that this is undoubtedly... Uh, More, more undoubted a mark of the Holy Spirit's work than raptures. This deep sense of sin and pleading to God for Christ to take it away. This is a mark of a true believer. When they hear of poor sinners flocking to Christ for salvation or the gracious manner in which he has stilled the fears and cheered the heart and received the souls of some that have just departed in true faith and the fear of his name. All their quickest interests are roused. The water stands in their eyes and something like a sensation of gladness is experienced in their hearts. They're interested in God's progression of his kingdom In the hearts of others. And shall we say that such as these are not true pilgrims. Because they do not tell of raptures. Shall we say that they have no true faith. Because their godly fear has evidently got before their lively hope. That's a good expression there. And a wonderful concise way of describing what's happened to these folk. Their godly fear has gotten in front of their lively hope. Isn't that beautiful? If I say I will speak thus, lo, I, shall, I should offend against the generation of thy children. Nowhere in the Bible is an ecstasy of joy insisted upon as an evidence of dying in the Lord. I want to say that clearly. Once more, nowhere in the Bible is an ecstasy of joy insisted upon as an evidence of dying in the Lord. We doubt not that this is often granted to upright souls. Where it is clearly and evidently the special work and operation of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. But we fear also it is often professed by such as have no root in themselves when it arises either from natural excitement or the delusion of the great deceiver. Hmm. To use the words of a sober and yet deeply experienced Christian, quote, Many excellent persons are incapacitated from speaking much in their last hours. And we ought by no means to judge of men's character on these grounds. The scriptures are generally silent about the manner in which saints of the Most High finish their course, and only few exceptions are found to this rule. We are indeed fully instructed in the nature of their faith and the effect which it had upon their life and conduct and thus assuredly we infer that they died in the Lord and entered into rest. Only let our faith be of the true saving kind. Let us habitually prove that it is so by the effect which it has upon our life and conduct and then doubtless. All will be well when we actually stand on Jordan's brink. And it shall be said to us, thou art this day to cross over. You don't need me to tell you how very important this subject is to me. When you come to cross over. What will it be? You don't know. I don't know. But I know he's the same. On the bright days and on the dark days. He'll be the same. When you go to cross over. And we have this assurance. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. In the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For thou art with me. And he said, I will never leave thee. I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Why would he leave you? Why would he leave you? In this greatest transportation that ever you will experience, why would he leave you? He never would. He never would. You may go out with great ecstasies of joy, and in my book, I record the testimony of some who did. Those accounts are glorious to read. <laughs> Glorious to read. Close the shades. But the shades are closed. Pull down the shade, the light is so bright. I can't. So bright. But there's only one candle in the room. <laughs> Testimonies of ecstasy crossing over. But you may not have that. You may not have that. The Lord may take you from the darkest place you've ever been in your experience. And suddenly you'll burst into the light of his presence from that dark place. It's all together up to him. Let us not judge from what our eyes see. He says make sure it's a lively faith. And How do you do that? By proving every day that it's working, operating in your heart, Bunyan goes on. In this place, the children of the town would go into the king's gardens and gather nosegays for the pilgrims, and bring them to them with much affection. Here also, great camp grew camphor with spikenard and saffron. Calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all chief spices. With these, the pilgrims' chambers were perfumed while they stayed there, stayed here. And with these were their bodies anointed to prepare them to go over the river when the time appointed was come. This is a beautiful place, this land of Beulah, filled with spices, filled with refreshing waters, filled with places for rest. How long shall you be there? No man can say. No man can say. You'll be there until the king sends with his warrant to take you. I told you, and I know that he would not be offended. I know that he would be glad, glad for me to use his testimony. I told you about Brother Charles Dowell the last time I was able to speak to him before he died. And I said, Brother, teach me something. Tell me something the Lord has taught you recently. I shall always, I hope I shall always remember what he said, Brother. This is the only thing I've learned. I was far more sinful than ever I thought I was. The work of sanctification. God was doing a mighty work of sanctification right at the end. And so it may be for all of us But it's still a beautiful land. It's beautiful if for nothing else for that. That he is granted a greater measure of repentance than we have ever known before. That is a beautiful land. We'll stop there today. Any questions or comments along the way here about the reading so far? We're not finished of course. Uh, Saints, other saints, some said there were other saints that came and ministered to the time. We tend in our culture to stay away, do we not? When we know that a person is dying, we tend to stay away, and it ought not to be so. I've been affected in my own heart and blessed every time I've called to check on Brother Oliver. I don't speak to him. I usually don't get to speak to him. I speak to her, and every time she says, John, come and see him, come by and see him. Anytime, please, just anytime, come by. Come by and see. (laughs) We tend in our culture to stay away when we know that one is dying. We ought not do that. We need to gather around them and bring them gifts and be a blessing. All right.